Well, Steve, thank you very much indeed for the warm welcome. It's great to be here in St. Peter's, an empty church building. Sorry that you're not all with us physically this morning, but great that you're able to be tuning in as we begin this new series looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We've prayed, so I'm just going to read to us from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, down to chapter 5, verse 10. It would be great if you're at home and you can turn up a Bible and read along with me. So Matthew chapter 4. And starting at verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, as I said, we're hoping over these next few months to study what must be the most famous speech in human history. Uh, Martin Luther King had a dream Winston Churchill vowed never to surrender, but this speech of Jesus Christ has had a more profound and lasting influence on human society than any other. It's been called his State of the Universe Address, and it contains words that are as searching as they are simple and as challenging as they are beautiful. In the original, it's just 2,038 words, short enough that when it's typed out, it feels just a couple of sides of A4, it can be read right through in 12 and a half minutes. But it's no exaggeration to say that if we humans were to put into practice the words that Jesus taught on that day, our world would be transformed. It would be paradise. It's the the transforming power of Jesus' words that I want to reflect on as we start. Martin Luther once wrote that the word of God possesses such power that wherever it's seriously considered and heeded and put into practice, it never remains barren of fruit, but always awakens new thoughts, new pleasures and devotions, and cleanses the heart and our meditations. If that's true of God's word generally, it's certainly true of these words of Jesus. One writer says that they breathe resurrection. And I'd want to add they also grant protection. 
Just at the end of this sermon in chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That is the, the promise of Jesus. Because the words of others might inspire us, but they can't keep us safe, not in the storms of life. And they certainly can't shield us from the storms of God's judgment. But if we hear these words of Jesus over these next few weeks, if we do them, well, then the the rains might fall, the floods might come, the winds might blow. But we will not fall because our life will be built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ himself. We need that kind of security more than ever in these unusual days in our national life. And we find it here. We've only time for the first few lines of this famous sermon this morning. We're going to look at them under three headings. The first is the dynamics of the kingdom, the dynamics of the kingdom. And if you were to glance down at your Bible, you'd see from the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5 that Jesus is being followed by great crowds of people. But he wants disciples, not crowds. And so in verse 1, he deliberately withdraws from them and goes up on a mountain where his disciples come to him. Important to note then that the primary audience of this sermon was just ordinary disciples like many of us this morning. In chapter 4, he told people to repent. He told them to follow him. And now he's explaining what a, if you've repented and if you're following me, life should look like. What are the, the blessings and the privileges that go along with being a member of Jesus' kingdom? What are the obligations? What are the responsibilities? Well, this sermon is going to tell us. So it is our sermon if we are followers of Jesus. Through it, he will call us to a richer and to a deeper kingdom life. But then I want to add that if we're just checking Christianity out for the the first time ever, then this is our sermon as well. If you were to flick over a page, if you had a Bible, to verse 28 of chapter 7, you'd see that even though Jesus had initially withdrawn from the crowds, they were wise to it. They'd managed to catch up with him, and they too were listening in as he taught his disciples. They were amazed at the things that he taught them. So this is a sermon that is aimed primarily at building disciples. But there are clear words of invitation here to anybody and to everybody. And the opening line tells us where we need to start, where anyone needs to start, if we come to God. Blessed, says Jesus, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word blessed sounds a bit twee these days to some of us. It it combines the ideas of divine approval on the one hand and human happiness on the other because God's favor rests upon the poor in spirit and there's no deeper or more lasting happiness than the joy that is found in relationship with our maker. Our world would say blessed are the strong and the talented, blessed are the successful and the beautiful. We esteem the self-made and the self-reliant 
And God says, blessed rather are the poor in spirit. So who are the, the poor in spirit? Answer, they're not the materially or financially poor. They are rather those who have come to admit and to own the scale of their spiritual debt before God. They're those who acknowledge that by nature, we are spiritually destitute and bankrupt. The Old Testament book of Isaiah is the backdrop to what Jesus is saying here. There God says, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and of a lowly spirit. He says, I esteem the one who trembles at my word. And it's that same idea here. You might remember a parable that Jesus told about a Pharisee and a tax man. Both of them went to the temple, both prayed, but the content of their prayer showed that only one of the two was poor in spirit. The Pharisee, the religious leader, was a, a very devout and upright man. He was a leader among God's people. But when he prayed, he prayed about himself and his own works. He said, dear God, I thank you that I'm not like the, the bad people in our world. I'm a good person. And I'm a religious person. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The reason that his prayer was all about the good things that he'd done and the religious works that he'd performed was that his spiritual confidence was in himself. The tax collector was very different. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he just beat his breast and prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because his confidence wasn't in himself at all, but just in God and his abundant mercy. And Jesus concluded that it, that it was that man, the tax collector, and not the Pharisee, who went home that day as one of God's friends. And that is the posture of the one who is poor in spirit. It's to admit to my, that left to myself, if God were, were keeping a record of my sins, I would be bankrupt a thousand times over. And that admission is the entry point to salvation because it is to the poor in spirit that Jesus freely gives the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah said he came to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus himself said that God had anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor in spirit. And so if I would just make that tax collector's prayer my own, if I would cast myself on God's mercy, then in his son and through the death of Jesus on the cross, God would freely give to me his kingdom. Could be that someone watching has never done that before. Today would be a, a great day to put that right. But there's another side to this as well, because poverty of spirit isn't just how someone gains entry into Jesus' kingdom. It's also how we grow to maturity in his kingdom. Up until this moment in Matthew, Jesus has spoken just a, a few words, but I've come to think of this opening line of his opening sermon in the book as an, an anchor from which we are never to drift. 
as a center point to which we are actively to return every day of our Christian life. I say that because in one way or another, everything that Jesus teaches in Matthew from this moment on reminds us of our poverty of spirit. It reminds us of our need for his forgiveness and his generous grace. You could glance just down to verse 6, for example. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I find it impossible to read that without being convicted of my own spiritual apathy. Or verse 7, blessed are the merciful. I'm nowhere near as merciful to others as God has been to me. He says a bit later on in this sermon, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I've not managed that even for one day or one hour of my life. Many of us want to love God with all our hearts. But every one of us fails every day. That experience is draining for a Christian. But ultimately it's good if it returns us to this anchor, to this center point, if it renews our dependence upon God's grace. So I want to guard us against ever drifting away from this verse 3. There are forms of Christianity out there that talk a lot about victory in Jesus' name and overcoming and winning. But they don't have much time for the, the ongoing sin and failure that, that dogs the Christian life of every Christian that I've ever met. Insofar as we would ever come adrift from this anchor of poverty of spirit, well, to that extent, we've come adrift from Jesus. Because his blessing is for the poor in spirit. But if I'm cautioning us against drifting from the anchor, I also want us to, to guard us against getting stuck in the middle of verse 3. It's impossible to, it is possible rather, to spend so long thinking about how far short we fall that we forget that Jesus came not to berate the poor in spirit, but to bless them. Poverty of spirit is our center point, not because God wants us to feel permanently disqualified from ever receiving his love, but because he wants us to know that the kingdom of heaven has been given to us if that's who we are. And because the more poor in spirit we are, the more full of praise we will be for the one who was willing to be cursed by God so that we might be blessed. So that's the dynamic of the kingdom. We get started in the same way that we grow to maturity. Both divine favor and human happiness rest on the poor in spirit. We'll think more about that, that blessing in a moment. But let's think first about our second major heading. We've had the dynamics of the kingdom. Now the depth of the kingdom. The depth of the kingdom. And here I just want us to see that being a part of Jesus' kingdom is unavoidably going to touch uh, every fiber of our being and to transform every interaction that we ever have. Let's start with verse four and mourning. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. He's not saying happy are the sad and grieving. That would be callous and untrue. 
and Jesus is always kind and always true. Instead, mourning in verse 4 is the natural counterpart to being poor in spirit in verse 3. If verse 3 is mainly intellectual, if you like, that moment when I, I come to my senses and realize before God that I'm completely undone, then verse 4 would be the, the emotional equivalent of that. When I say, but like Isaiah did in the Old Testament, woe is me because I know that I'm completely undone before God. So this is a deeply restorative word to those who are convicted of our sin. Isaiah says that God's servant Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. Here he promises true comfort to those who are weighed down by sin and guilt. That isn't, though, to encourage emotionalism. Mourning isn't an act that we put on in front of other people or a reaction that we try to generate in ourselves. God says of Israel at one point in the Old Testament, they, they wail upon their beds, but they do not cry to me from the heart. And we know that there can be tears of worldly remorse and regret that fall a long way short of true repentance. People sometimes cry when their sins are discovered or weep for themselves and they begin to feel the consequence of their wrongdoing. But this mourning is different because it, it's centered on God, not me. Woe to me, for against you, God, and you only have I sinned. That, that's what I mean about the the depth of the kingdom. Because you can go to church, but it doesn't touch you. God's word can be in one ear and out the other. But being a part of Jesus' kingdom will always impact us on the, the inside. It will reach our affections and our emotions. We'll grow to love the things that God loves, to hate the things that he hates. And so we will love Jesus. And we will mourn deeply over our sin. And I want to underline that that experience of mourning will remain with us all the way through our Christian lives. We shouldn't expect to outgrow it or to move on from it. Actually, as the years go by, we're likely to realize more and more how much sin we have to mourn over. But again, let's not get stuck in the middle of verse 4. Jesus doesn't say that those who mourn for their sin are hopeless or disqualified, says that they're blessed and he promises to comfort us. So being a part of God's kingdom is going to change the way that we think about ourselves. It's quite liberating, really. It makes us much more realistic about who we are. It allows us to be honest about our faults with ourselves before one another and especially before God. But beyond that, it's also going to transform the way that we relate to everybody else. That's verse 5, meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, to be meek is not the same as being weak. Uh, the Lord Jesus describes himself as meek a bit later in Matthew. You could never accuse him of being weak. In our case, we can think of 
meekness as the kind of gentle and humble manner that you would expect from someone who is spiritually bankrupt and mourns their sin. So meekness would be the opposite of being aggressive or pushing yourself forward and wanting to make yourself heard or to get your way all the time. It would contrast with the selfish trampling over other people, with being domineering. And this would be a God-centered quality too. Jesus is quoting Psalm 37, and there the meek are those who delight in the Lord, those who wait patiently for him and who make faithfulness their friend. It occurred to me, I don't know what you'll think of this, but when you look at the, the nature of political discourse on the one hand and much of what passes for comedy on our screens, you could make a case for saying that there is no more underrated virtue in our own day than meekness. And yet how much we, how deeply we all appreciate this humble other-centeredness when we meet it. It's how we want to be treated by people. Now, just speaking personally, I know that I've got a, a very long way to go in this area. I'm sure some others do as well. Because true meekness will transform every relationship and every interaction in your life. It will shape the way that I relate to my spouse to my children, to my parents, to those that I work for, to those who work for me, to everybody in church, and not just my friends, but those who hate or oppose me. But think about it. How can anyone who is truly poor in spirit push themselves forward arrogantly? Or think that it's okay to use other people for my own advancement or amusement. You can't. That's why meekness or gentleness is included in the fruit of the Spirit. That God the Holy Spirit grows in, in all of God's children. Our society might say, pity the meek. You've got to push yourself forward if you're going to get on in life. Jesus says, no, the meek are blessed. And it's to God's blessing that we now turn. It's our final point this morning. The dynamics of the kingdom, the depth of the kingdom, and now the delight of the kingdom. And each of these blessings is given freely and by grace to all who follow Jesus. They're things that we enjoy truly now in the present, but that we won't fully experience until we're with our Lord forevermore in the future. I guess if I asked you to finish the sentence, the greatest blessing you could have in the world is, then you might opt for something beginning with F. Family, friends, fun, a fulfilled life. Or maybe something beginning with H. Health, happiness, hope, even hilarity. And they are great blessings. We should be thankful if God's given them to us in our life. But these blessings are greater still. 
Verse 3, first, blessed are the poor in spirit, says Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven wasn't just one of the main topics of Jesus' preaching. It's actually a major theme of the whole of the Bible. It's a way of talking about God's rule in the world. And if you wanted to try and summarize the message of the whole Bible in just six or seven sentences, you would say, well, the Garden of Eden modeled the kingdom of God. The fall of Adam and Eve spoiled it. The covenant with Abraham promised it. The rule of the Old Testament kings anticipated it. The words of the prophets longed for it. And the new creation will see it perfected. But the big message of Matthew's gospel so far, we're just dipping into chapter five, but the biggest message of chapters one to four is that Jesus has established the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's been saying that because Jesus is the king that God promised, we can be sure that God's heavenly and eternal kingdom is near, that it's broken into the world, it's here now, that in him the promised new creation has arrived. I want to say that makes this announcement in verse 3 absolutely breathtaking because Jesus doesn't this time say the kingdom of heaven is here he says the kingdom of heaven is yours if you're someone who's following me I'm sure we can see how encouraging that is for the one who knows and admits their spiritual bankruptcy Or in verse 10, the same promise is made to anyone who's ever been persecuted for their faith. Because it assures us that neither inner failure nor external opposition could rob us of the only treasure that matters. Because Jesus delights to share with us his kingdom. So that we're not just given a place in his kingdom great as that is, but a part share in it, ownership of it with him. It's ours. It's ours now in such a way that nothing and no one could ever take it from us. And in the future too, when we finally reign with Jesus, if we're Christians, in his eternal kingdom. Or look again at the the promise of comfort in verse 4. There are lots of things that we turn to for comfort today, aren't there? As children, maybe you had a a favourite teddy bear or blanket. At times we all need a, a hug and a shoulder to cry on. But we know too that all human comfort is at best partial and interrupted and short lived. Because we can try to wipe each other's tears away. But we know they'll return. Here though Jesus promises something that is better. Because though we mourn for sin, our tears don't have the final word. Comfort does. Before his birth the angel said, You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And in him, we know the wonderful comfort of salvation. 
He has already saved us from the penalty of sin. He's freed us too from the the power of sin so that a, a godly life is now possible in the spirit. Never perfectly in this life, but it is possible. And one day we know he will save us from the very presence of sin itself. So this is a a gospel comfort that is objective and eternal. And we enjoy it now in Christ and in the ministry of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. It's often mediated to us through other believers in the church as we share each other's burdens and weep with those who weep and point each other back to our hope in Christ. But again, we we won't experience it fully until the day when the Lord God himself personally wipes away all of our tears with such healing power that they will never return. The final word of promise is there in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's a sense in which that's true now. And Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that all things are are ours as Christians, life and death, the present and the future, even the world. But God's kingdom today isn't about physical territories and claiming the ground. So this promise pushes us forward again to the day when God's people will inherit the new creation to enjoy and to rule over with him. A perfect new world, free from any of the things that from time to time, spoil our enjoyment of this one. And the whole earth will be truly ours. It's just the most wonderful thought. I've uh, resigned myself now to the fact that I'll probably never have time in this life to climb in the foothills of Everest or to walk on the, mount- on the islands of the Tierra del Fuego. I'm not expecting to go on safari in Namibia or snowboarding in Whistler. And the great news is that I don't need to because there will be plenty of time for all of those things and many more one day. Do you know, I think sometimes even as Christians, we can be so consumed by a desire to experience everything that this world has to offer that it must sometimes look to others as though we don't really believe that the eternal matters more than the temporal. I know that many are praying that these days of the coronavirus will remind us of what's truly important in life. It'd be great to be praying as well that they would remind us of when is truly important. Listen to Don Carson's comment on this verse. I love it because he says, 50 billion trillion years into eternity. It's quite a long time. Not sure how many zeros, but it's a long time. God's people will still be rejoicing that this beatitude, this statement of Jesus' blessing is literally true. In a new heaven and earth, they will be grateful that by grace they learn to be meek during their initial three score years and ten. There then is the delight of the kingdom, a super abundance of blessing 
that God gives to his children now and has stored up for us in the future. And I want to end by turning our minds to the generosity of our incredible God. Think for a moment of how you feel about your enemies, those who mistreat you. Marvel with me that it was when we were hostile, bankrupt sinners that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to bear the curse that our sins deserve for all of our rejection of God, all of our chasing after other idols and other things instead of him. He took all of that curse so that in him we might be truly blessed. It's often said the only thing that we contribute to our sin, to our salvation rather, is our sin. It's our spiritual debt. But if you've trusted in Christ still, you are truly blessed in the only way that matters. One day, whatever material and physical blessings we now enjoy will be gone. Whatever material and physical disadvantage we've experienced will be long forgotten. But God's love and favour will never leave or forsake you. Because with all of God's people, the kingdom of heaven is yours. And you shall be comforted. And you shall inherit the earth. Let me lead us in prayer as we close. Almighty God, we thank you that you're not a God who sends us away to clean up our own act and tells us that we have to be perfect before we could have anything to do with you. Thank you that it was at the moment that we were still sinners, still rebellious and hostile towards you, that you sent your one and only son into the world to die so that whoever might believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you that in him, if we've trusted in him, we are truly blessed. Thank you that uh, as we admit our wrongs, you give to us the kingdom of heaven. Thank you that as we grieve for them, you promise to comfort us now and forevermore. And thank you that one day we will enjoy and inherit a perfect new creation. We pray that you might grow in us these qualities that you love, of humility, of meekness, and that you might make us a community that is truly gentle with one another, that points one another back to the hope that we have in Jesus and that celebrates the great blessing that is ours in him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.